Thank you for listening to this chapel message, originally presented at Clark Summit University in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. With more than 70 on-campus and online programs, Clark Summit University prepares Christ-centered, career-ready graduates to make a difference around the world. We hope this is an encouragement to you today. When I arrived here in 1991, I ended up having a class with Dr. Lytle that was called Building a Biblical Lifestyle. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, That was very formative to me in my biblical development, so I'm grateful for that. And I also got to have principles of Bible study with him before he left for Parts Unknown. So uh, today I had the privilege of talking to you about some things that we are seeing emerge, some challenges that are somewhat new challenges for your generation. Some of them are similar to challenges that other generations have felt, but some of them are unique. So what I want to talk to you about today is really predicated on some research, and it's some research that we have done on generational trends and some of the beliefs and behaviors that are markers of today's youth. So before we address some of the specifics about the current generation, the one that really embodies people somewhere between the ages of about 10 and 25, um, I want you to understand why we study generations in the United States. Um, Generations become cohorts that because of their age, they have some shared experiences. Um, Notably, these experiences are outside of the generation's control. Um, They don't get to dictate these experiences. They're things that happen in time. They happen in history. And those begin to shape them. There's an organization called the Center for Generational Kinetics. And they explain it this way. They say, generation-shaping trends are most influential as people come of age, which means as members of a particular generation will develop and share similar values, beliefs, and expectations. It's important to remember that at an individual level, everyone's different. But looking at people through a generational lens offers useful predictability for those trying to reach, inform, or persuade a large cross-section of a population. I think for us, this is critical because some of you are within that generation and you're going to interact with a lot of peers in your lifetime who have some shared beliefs and behaviors because of those influences. And then some of us have the joy and opportunity of working with that generation. It's also beneficial to you to understand trends from previous generations because you have to interact with those folks too. So just as a point of review this morning, Um, There are six generations that we are currently navigating with. Oh, no, part of my slide is missing. Those are the dates. I'll explain what goes in them. Um, uh, Those six generations are the silent generation, which is anyone still alive today that was born before 1945. Um, That silent generation is a label that was given to them in part because early on, they were not making a big difference in their world the way some of the previous generations had. In fact, there were no presidents that came out of the silent generation. Um, But now we recognize that there has been some loyalty in that generation, and they were committed to values. And so we, we, in a long time, start understanding fuller, uh, fuller pieces of the generational patterns, and we really appreciate that about that generation. Beneath the silent generation are the baby boomers. Baby boomers were born somewhere between 1946 and about 1964. Boomers are best known for idealism, collaboration, and mocking millennials. 
That's, that's pretty much their jam. They're super duper good at it. Um, I might add some other things like uh, sharing unsupported uh, articles on Facebook. That might be another one of their trends. Um, underneath the boomers is Generation X. And Generation X was born sometime between 1965 and 1976. And Generation X is interesting because it was the first generation that we had no idea what to call them. Um, but Generation X is primarily known for greed and laziness. Gotta love that. Um, there's also been no presidents from Generation X, just in case you wondered. Um, so then under Generation X, we have the Millennials. The Millennials were born somewhere between 1977 and about 1994. Um, so Millennials are known for a lot of things today, but my favorite one is witty memes that mock the boomers. Um, they are they're generally dissatisfied with social dynamics in our world. They, they want to see something better. Their, their frustration levels are well known, and sometimes the, the term that is most applied to them is entitlement. So after the, the millennials comes this next generation, and we haven't really settled on a name for the next generation, so there are several names that are floating around. Um, and in that, you have people that start from about 1995, and the belief right now in the research is that the cutoff age for that generation is going to be somewhere around 2010. Um, now, there are distinct events that generally mark the kind of beginning and end of a generation something in history. You notice that the years, the t amount of time for a specific generation varies widely. From 12 years to 20 years, we see um, different lengths. And the reason is what there are marks in history that denote that. Now, for generation, um, this, la this newest generation, they began kind of as people who didn't experience 9-11. They don't remember it as something that actually happened. They've only heard about it as a historical event. So they say people who were under the age of five or six when 9-11 happened don't understand its impact personally. They've only heard about it. So that's kind of the beginning of the generation. And what we expect to sort of be the end of that generation in the U.S. is the awareness of the recession of 2008 and its impact. So they're thinking it's not going to go farther than about 2010. Um, so there's a lot of different things that we see as outside influences that color what happens within a generation. Now, older generations love to understand, that we love to study younger generations, so we can, we can identify the things that make them different. We can understand why do they do the things they do, and then we can write articles that criticize them. It's kind of our jam. So sometimes that becomes sort of our focus, all the things that frustrate us about the next generation. But it's important to remember um, the truth that came from that great philosopher, Billy Joel, who said, we didn't start the fire. It's always been burning since the world's been turning. Ironically enough, as much as older people like to criticize younger generations, guess who raised them? Guess whose actions and policies have dictated the circumstances under which they are, are being reared? So because of this influence, it's often beyond the control of those generations, yet we need to understand that there's a strong influence in what's happening today. So we are going to talk um, today and tomorrow about some of the trends that are emerging about this generation of people between the ages of about um, 15 and 25 about 10 to 25, somewhere in that range right there, depending on whose years you're going to go with. 
And if you're part of that cohort, you need to understand that you might be an exception to that rule. Um, I certainly hope that I'm an exception to Generation X. Um, but you also will interact with a lot of people in that cohort who do share a lot of these kinds of patterns of beliefs. So <clears throat> notably, um, there's some disagreement about what we should name in this cohort. Um, obviously, um, this often changes. Like, they call a generation by this letter, we've done this since Generation X, um, until we figure out what embodies them enough and enough consensus grows about what to call it. And there's a lot of disagreement right now about what we should call this generation. So here's some samples of things that people have proposed to call this generation. One of them is, is uh, iGen, you know, little i big gen, um, which reminds us of the fact that this generation was the first to experience the digital world in its fullness. I mean, you guys were born with the internet. And for generations before you, that was not the case. In fact, so much of your life is lived within a digital world that iGen has been one of the popular conceptualizations. Some people are still referring to it as Gen Z. Um, but we also have another proposal, and this proposal comes from a think tank um, called McKinsey and Company. And as they have um, really researched these, these trends, what they actually suggest is that what your generation should be called is true gen. And their argument for that, I think, is something that is um, kind of compelling. So they argue this. They say teenagers and college students are desperately seeking truth and they're trying to navigate different ideas of truth as they are bombarded with constant streams of information. I mean, the reality is that in one day, you guys are exposed to more information than your grandparents could have been exposed to in their entire lives. It is amazing how much data is flowing at you in any given moment. If you're not sure about that, ask your parents because they've been monitoring your downloads. Like they're, they're, you're like destroying their data, their data packages. So, um, we know that there's lots and lots and lots of information coming at this generation. Research by entrepreneurs suggests this overwhelming information stream has resulted in an attention span of 8.25 seconds which they note is less than a goldfish. All right. Eight seconds is not enough time to weigh the credibility of sources or assess new information for bias. It's not enough time to consider long-term implications of ideas or the strength or weaknesses of arguments. And for that reason, true-gen individuals tend to accept information at face value from a variety of sources. I think this is really a critical understanding of what's happening in our world. You get all this information, you don't have time to test it or to question it. You're just, you just like throw it in the pile. More information, more information, more information. Now, just because they toss everything in the same category does not mean that that category is one that they assign truth to. It's just another idea. And the reason for that is truth has become such a subjective idea within the culture. Much of the cultural discussions on social media discuss living your truth, finding your truth. And this your adjective there is a critical one because it suggests that truth is very subjective. It is very intrinsic. And it is something that only you can identify and discover. <clears throat> 
So if truth or if your truth is rooted just in your own ideas and your own experiences, then we also have a cultural corollary that says you have to respect, accept, and affirm anyone else's truth. Well, if they disagree, then what has happened is the, the cultural pressure is that you have to create a category that says it's true for somebody, so I have to respect it as true, but it disagrees with what is true for somebody else, and I have to respect that as truth. So when um, the think tank identifies we should call this generation true gen because they are so seeking this truth, in part it is because everything that is coming at them, they're having a hard time sorting and finding certainty in that information. And since your generation puts everything on social media, then it is not difficult for the rest of the world, the, the generations above you, to go, we see you seeking, but we don't see you finding. We see that you're searching for purpose, you're searching for identity, you're searching for a deeper understanding, but we're worried about how you're going to anchor that certainty. <clears throat> so obviously for us as believers, we know that we can find a certainty. We can find an anchor for our faith, and that anchor should be in Christ. That anchor should be the Word of God. But there are both some promising and some very disturbing indicators in some current cultural research about True Gen or Generation Z. Number one, according to research by the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, young people are more open to hearing about other people's religious views, and they're more respectful about other people's faith. For us, that should be something that's encouraging because there's an open door for people to hear us testify of what we believe. The challenge comes that just because they hear what we believe and are respectful about it, it doesn't mean that they give it any value. It doesn't mean that they identify that as something that should influence their own lives. Barna Research notes that atheism is on the rise. And in part, it seems like because there are so many um, religious views that are thrown into that same category of validity, then why would you choose one? Why would you believe in any one of them? Why would you be persuaded? The Barna Research also found that only 4% of Gen Z or True Gen, only 4% function from a biblical worldview. I'm going to say that again. Only 4% of young people, the ones who are going to shape our future, the ones who are somewhere between 10 and 25, only 4% function from a biblical worldview. Even Christian young people that are part of this generation are struggling to find and identify the Bible as their ultimate source of truth. So I want you to open your Bible app um, to 2 Timothy chapter 3 today. 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you, if you open your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3, we find a book that was written by Paul to Timothy. Um, Timothy was um, one, of, uh, one of the several people that Paul really mentored as he um, pushed him towards the job that he could have in this new way, in the cause of Christ, in spreading the gospel. Um, and we are, we are blessed to have two books that Paul wrote to Timothy. And the content, I think, is really critical. And I think it really identifies some things that are very, re very relevant to what we're talking about today. So as Paul is wrapping up 2 Timothy, he gets to the last couple, couple chapters. He's kind of given some challenges to Timothy. 
And he describes in the beginning of chapter 3, he says there are, there are bad things coming. There is a godlessness that is coming in the future. And some of the descriptions in here, I don't know, maybe give me a little bit of deja vu when it comes to this generation. Because besides the fact that he talks about lovers of themselves before he even knew about selfies, he talks about lovers of money and boastful and proud. But I want to focus in on what he says in verse 7. He says, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. That, that is what the godlessness that was coming. It was that we would always want more information, but we would want information that puffs up. Not information that puts us in humility before the truth of God. Not information that would give us a truth that is worth submitting and giving an authoritative role in our lives. Not that truth, just more information. And as Paul describes this time that is coming when people turn away from God and they turn to themselves and they turn to sources of satisfaction that are not anchored in any sort of certainty, he wraps this in a charge to Timothy that starts in the middle of chapter 3 and continues into the beginning of chapter 4. And I'm going to read starting in verse 10 of chapter 3 through about verse 4 of chapter 4. You, however, knew all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, my persecutions, my sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions that I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearance and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and they will turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge the duty of your ministries. As Paul warns Timothy that these difficult times are coming, that these times when truth is not certain, at these times when people will turn to the sources that tell them what they want to hear, he says what you got to hold tight to is truth. He reminds Timothy of some really kind of critical things. He said, first of all, you have watched my testimony. You have watched my life, my purpose, my faith, my endurance in spite of, of suffering. He said, look at the life I have lived. Sometimes 
the testimony of faith of people, especially who have faced adversity and they have learned where to find their hope is something that ought to inspire us. And Paul certainly had that kind of testimony. Listen, he didn't start off believing in Jesus Christ. He didn't start off believing this new way that is embodied in the scriptures in the New Testament. He started off rejecting that because there was another way that he had been taught and that way could let him feel good about himself. That way he could say, I'm the best of the best. I've done the things that are right. But it wasn't the true gospel. It wasn't the true kingdom of God. And God came to him. And in this time, in this moment on the road to Damascus, there was something that was so powerful that it turned Paul's life on its ear. It changed everything. It changed everything about what motivated him. And instead, what he did is he devoted his life to serving this cause, to serving the cause of spreading the gospel, spreading this good news everywhere he went. And he faced adversity. This was not easy. In the middle of it, we know Paul was stoned and left for dead. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. He faced awful things everywhere he went. But there was something that was so powerful that it wasn't going to change his mind. He never like got up from a beating and said, maybe I need a vacation or maybe the world is trying to tell me something and, and this should just be somebody else's job. He was so persuaded and he was so certain that he was driven and nothing was going to change that. Paul says, you've seen my life. You've seen my commitment to this message. He says, you've seen how God has moved in my life. Now that is also a powerful testimony of the truth of scripture. Because whether or not you have experienced a lot of moments yourself, when God used the word of God in such a powerful, powerful way that it changed everything about that moment for you. You might not have experienced a lot of those. You're young. But there are people who could tell you stories. They could tell you the power of God in difficult moments and the way God moves in us the way he moves through his people, the way he moves through his world. And when you have experienced one of those moments, I got to tell you, it is something that changes your faith. It is something that prepares you for the next difficult time. Because if God could support me in that time, he can support me in this time. If what he says is true was true in the middle of that, then it's still true today. So Paul references the fact that God continued to be involved, rescuing him from his persecutions, being his support during that time. But then he anchors this passage with a critical thing. He says, you have to hold on to truth. And he says to Timothy, from the time you were young, you've been taught the sacred scriptures. He said, this is something that is not new because People have been trying to help you understand this. For a lot of you, this is similar to what you've experienced. You have experienced people who have tried to teach you the Bible. You might have done that in Sunday school or children's church. You might have done that in a Christian school. You might have done that in family devotions. Had people who said, I want you to know the word. And now, 
We put you in classrooms and we say, we want you to know the word. We want you to know how to study the word of God. We want you to take lots and lots of Bible classes. Because when you get out of here, no matter what you go to do for your God, we want to make sure that you are anchored in this word. The problem is, as much as the rest of us would like to tell you how to anchor your life in the word, you have to make that decision. You have to decide what truth you will cling to. And if you approach this, like so many in your generation have, as just another information stream that is no different or no more valuable or no more true than any other information stream, then you will not end up knowing a certain truth. You will not end up with the beauty of what Paul is going to describe the Word of God in its roles. He describes the fact that the Word of God is able to make us wise to salvation. I think that kind of speaks to the fact that as human beings, naturally, we're not drawn to things that require humility. We're drawn to things that make us feel good about ourselves. And you know what? That's not the gospel's job. The gospel's job is to remind us of how desperately sin-sick we are. How hopeless we are without our Savior. That wisdom that we need to accept God's gift of salvation is something that we can find in the Word. It's something that probably doesn't come naturally to us. So we need the Scripture because it's able to make us wise unto salvation. But he goes on and he says, listen, this is direct truth from an all-knowing God. This is God-breathed. You know, the information that is out there comes from a variety of different sources. Some of them are lousy sources. Who are you going to believe? You know, sometimes students come up to me and say, I want to start understanding more about what's happening in my world. Which news channel should I watch? Tell me which one isn't biased. That's the answer. They all have a bias. Because when humans look at human things, they come to human conclusions. They come to flawed conclusions. And you cannot take every source of information, some that actually know what they're talking about and some that don't, and act as if they're equal. And he says this truth, this truth from the Word of God, is something that is breathed out by an all-knowing God. Think about that. Direct truth from the designer, the creator, the sustainer himself. That's what we have access to. That ought to be on a completely different level of credibility for us. It ought to be something that we go, wait, I can hear it right from him? Bring it. That's what I want to know. This is God-breathed, but then Paul goes on to say, not only is it God-breathed, this is something that is practical. This is something that has an amazing purpose and effect that ought to be something that we cling to. Because the perfect purpose and effect he describes is that it is profitable for us to understand doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We can understand doctrine, what is true about God and his word. We can understand where we do not measure up to that truth. We can understand how to fix where we don't measure up to that truth. And then we can understand how shall we then live. That's in the word of God. 
Guys, those are the very questions that I engage with all the time. I want to know him. I want to know what I'm wrong about him. I want to know how to fix it. I want to know how to live to please him. And it's in the Bible. And he caps it with this in that last verse of chapter 3. He says, that way, with the word of God, the man of God can be thoroughly furnished for every good work. He will be thoroughly equipped to do everything that God asks him to do. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I don't think the context of this passage is as disrupted as the people who put the chapter breaks in there think it is. Because Paul goes on in chapter 4, and he says, I give you this charge, preach the word. It's back to that same anchor. Hold on to this. This is what you have to preach. This is what you have to teach. Be prepared to do the very things I just told you the word of God can do to correct, to rebuke, to encourage with great patience, careful instruction. For the time will come when men won't want to hear truth. I think it's arguable that we certainly see the markers of that in our time. The markers of an idea that the Word of God is just another idea. It's just another source of information. Somebody wants to listen to it, that's fine but there's no authority. There's no supremacy. There's no anchor. And Paul's charge to Timothy is cling to the word of God. As I look at these passages, there's a couple things that I want to kind of help us apply a little bit to Generation Z, to true gen. The pressures are there. Trust me, if we knew how to remove those pressures for you, we would do that. If somehow I could shield my children, who are all part of this generation, if I could shield my children from whatever influences will cause them to question the authority of Scripture, I would do it. I promise that right now there are oceans of Christian parents who are wrestling with this very question. How do I help my young person anchor their lives in the word of God. We'll do everything that we can, but I think what it really comes down to is there's a faith. There's a commitment from you that is required. And the same way Paul charged Timothy to hold on to that, to preach the word, to stick with scripture, the same way we would like to charge you with that. It's a move in your heart that has to be motivated by the Holy Spirit, but it has to be something that's intrinsic in you. And I promise that going to Clark Summit University and taking principles of Bible study won't be enough unless you decide that this is your rule for life. Unless you decide that you have found truth with a capital T. You've found truth that goes in a different category than all the information that you've bombarded with until you decide that this is what you will cling to. And until it becomes more than a class, until it becomes more than an assignment, until it becomes something that you ache for and that you long for and that something that builds certainty in you, something that brings joy in you. Now, I know from my 20 years of working with college students. I know that there are a lot of you who go, I would like to 
know the Bible better. I would like to have more time studying the Bible. There's always a but that follows those kinds of statements. One of those buts is, I'm so busy. I'm going to argue some things with you. You may not want to know this, but this is not the busiest time in your life. It may feel like it is, but I promise it's not. There are other days coming that will be even busier. This is a good time to practice creating a priority for Scripture. But more than just the time you spend in Scripture, I think what is most critical is the way that you approach Scripture. If you are just listening to one more information stream, if you separate it out from a relationship with God, if you separate it out from a pursuit of not just knowing the Bible, but knowing God, if you separate it out from that, it will only puff up. It will not transform you. It will not become an anchor that you are going to desperately need in the days to come. It's heartbreaking to me sometimes as I work with people, I say things like, okay, but doesn't the Bible have an answer for that? Very many times I get a, yeah, but. I know what it says, but I'm not going to give it the authority to rule my life. That is the challenge for a true gen. That's the challenge for Generation Z. As, as all of this information comes at you, how will you decide what is authoritative? What is the truth with a capital T? What is unique? What is priceless? What has authority in our life because of its authorship, its credibility, its power, and its effectiveness? And what is in the Word of God is completely unmatched by any other source of information. I wanted to start with that today, because tomorrow, when you come back to chapel, we're going to talk about some other specific challenges that are facing this generation. Some things that maybe are very different than what my generation faced, but maybe they're similar. And they're definitely things that the Word of God has a lot to say about. So we're going to take some of those and kind of pick them apart, see what Scripture says, and see if that will change how you navigate those challenges. Now, notably, it has to start here. Because there's no point to tomorrow if what the Word of God has to say doesn't matter. It's just more information. So I hope you'll come back. If you like today, it'll be more like today. If you didn't like today, it'll be way better. That's my promise to you. Um, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to send you anyway. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for our opportunity to kind of work through this passage that has so much to say to us about what is truth. It has so much to say to us about what you have given us in the Word of God. And I, I ask you, Lord, I ask you to forgive us for the times that we neglect it. And I ask you to use your Word in such a transformational way that it would be something that we cling to, something that we thirst for, long for. And Lord, I ask that you would take that 4% of Generation Z that has a biblical worldview, and I pray that you would make them a very bright, bright light to their generation. And I pray that you would help them to be able to scream the reality of a God who loves them and who died for them and who has a plan for their life. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this chapel message, originally presented at Clark Summit University in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. 
With more than 70 on-campus and online programs, Clark Summit University prepares Christ-centered, career-ready graduates to make a difference around the world. We hope this is an encouragement to you today.